Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Coming up, you'll be hearing from author and researcher Shanti Feldhahn addressing issues relative to women finding rest and peace in the Lord. Then you'll be hearing from author and blogger Elizabeth Lang Thompson talking about moving forward in the Lord, doing what he's directed and not being held back. Then some comments relative to prayer and revival from Nick Hall of the Pulse Movement, preparing for a major event in Dallas this fall. And Mark Arenas of Harvest America, sharing about that major evangelistic outreach also in Dallas in June, featuring evangelist Greg Laurie, available for simulcast to churches and homes. And on this edition of The Intersection, you'll be hearing from the activist mommy, Elizabeth Johnston. She spoke with me about an event in Washington recently that featured people who had been set free by the Lord from homosexuality, underscoring the concept that Jesus will change a person's life. Then it's former corporate executive Bruce Hartman with comments on how to integrate the teachings of Jesus into a business climate. Finally, Travis Weber of Family Research Council with analysis on a recent presidential executive order establishing a new office to protect religious freedom as well as progress made on religious liberty during the previous year. This is the intersection of production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Shanti Feldhahn is established as an author who uses research in order to address various topics biblically. Her latest book, Find Rest, a women's devotional for lasting peace in a busy life, integrates biblical and scientific principles on the topic of rest and provides a 60-day reading plan designed to help women experience rest in their lives. Now, this is Shanti Feldhahn. You know, it's interesting. I wish I could say that, you know, I came up with this great idea of doing this devotional in in this process, and really, honestly, God set it up this way. I probably... If I, if I had my druthers, you know, because I'm a researcher, it's like, ooh, I found out all this cool stuff about how to find rest. Let me put it in this nonfiction book about finding rest. And you know what? If you were to read this big, thick nonfiction book about finding rest, it would have been pretty overwhelming, which kind of would defeat the purpose. So <laughs> it, was, it was fascinating that God set this up from the beginning by giving me an opportunity to do a devotional, and when I thought about doing it on this topic, I realized, you know what, this is, this is exactly what needs to happen. Because instead of having this, all these big, overwhelming lessons that we feel like we need to work at, it's instead, it allows a little bit of truth, a little nugget of truth and inspiration and an aha moment and a chance to say, okay, how does this one little thing apply to me? And kind of soak it in for the day without having this feeling of, like, I have to work on this. And it just sort of soaks in and automatically becomes a part of your life. And then the next day, there's something a little bit different. It's a different element of rest. It's something you hadn't thought about before, and that then soaks in. And then the next one, and the next one, and before you realize it, you're 60 days down the road, and you're totally at a place of real rest for your souls without having this sense that I had to work hard to get here. Well, during the course of 60 days, you actually walk women through the eight elements of the journey to find rest. And Shanti, I wanted you to walk us very briefly through these different elements that you bring out in the devotional Find Rest. Sure, yeah, because this is really where, the, as you say, the rubber meets the road, right? These are the things that we tend to miss that are going to really be important. 
One of the biggest ones is to shift our perspective. It is, it is absolutely fascinating how often we're stressed and anxious because we're focusing on the things that are going to make us stressed and anxious. <laughs> and I mean, like, for example, I was talking with this woman recently, and she was really having difficulty in her marriage. And let me tell you, for us as women, I don't know about you as men, but for us as women, it's like if something is wrong in our marriage, nothing is right with the world until that is resolved. <laughs> there's, there's very few things that are going to cause us the level of stress that that does. And she was really having, a, this lady was having a difficult time because she was really feeling like her husband took her for granted and felt like it was her job to do all the chores. Like he never, this is her words, right? That he's like, he never does the chores. Like he'll walk past this sink full of dishes and not touch it. And I feel like he feels like it's my job. And she was resenting it and it was, it was causing problems. And so as talking through, what would it mean to shift your perspective? One of the truths that we see in scripture and in science is what Paul says in Philippians 4.8. Like, look, it's really important to think on the things that are excellent and lovely and worthy of praise rather than the things that are worthy of driving you crazy. And so in doing that, she said, okay, I'm, I'm not going to focus on those negative things just for a few days. I'm just going to look for the things that are excellent in my husband. And so that night, he comes home from work early to take the kids to soccer because she has this big meeting. And then she gets home from the meeting, and it's been a bad meeting, and she's really upset. And he listens, and he, you know, comforts her, and he tries to strategize a bit about what to do the next day. And then the kids get into some squabbles, and he's, he doesn't react. He doesn't handle it by flying off the handle like she might have that night. He's very calm and very patient and handles it really well. And she, she realized, hold on, I have this kind, patient caring, listening, generous husband who cares about me and listens to my tears and helps with coming home early and stopping what he needs to do to help me. And I'm sitting here worried about the darn dishes in the sink. And it was this realization that so often she was really undermining how she felt about her marriage and then the marriage itself by focusing on what was not excellent and worthy of praise. And it it really changed everything for her. And that's a perfect example mm. of just how one of the elements could be applied in your life. Shanti Feldhahn here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to the website findrestbook.com. Well, this is The Intersection Podcast with author and blogger Elizabeth Lang Thompson, author of the book, When God Says Go, Rising to Challenge and Change Without Losing Your Confidence, Your Courage, or Your Cool. She related some principles about following God as he directs. Here now is Elizabeth Lang Thompson. Sometimes I think when we're called to wait, it's usually, um, it, it's often we don't want to be there. You know, we sort of feel stuck in a situation that we wish would change and we wish could we could get out of. And, and, and that's usually obvious. I think sometimes when God is saying go, it's harder to discern because sometimes you have a choice to make. Do I take a new job or do I stay where I am? Do I 
pursue a, a different role of service in God's church or, or do I keep doing what I've been doing? And it can be harder to discern that. Uh, but then there are those times when God says, go, and it is so clear. You you know, you lose your job and you got to find another one. You, your family is moving and, and there's nothing you can do to to change that, or, or even you go through a loss or some kind of grief and, and you have to find a way to go forward, um, in a new life that you might not have chosen for yourself. Well, and there may be people, I would even say, listening in to this conversation that are perhaps sensing God wants to do something in their own lives. Maybe they sense that he might be calling them to do something different, to make a change, to to make a move. But there are things that obviously hold people back. One of those big areas would be what you refer to as fear disorders. Give us some examples <laughs> and, and how people can really overcome those. Oh my goodness. Well, I, you know, these all basically come straight from my own, my own heart. You've got too good to be true syndrome. You've got hyperactive self-criticism condition, or just kidding, I didn't mean to pray that prayer disease because now God said yes, and I have to be brave. <laughs> there are so many different ways that I think fear holds us back. And, and really what it boils down to when we are struggling with these fears is we're more focused on ourselves than we are on God. It, it, the situation has become about me and how am I qualified and how am I spiritually prepared for this when God is saying, you know what, when I call you, it's not about you, it's about me. And, and when God calls us, he's always qualified and he will loan whatever we lack. He will, he will provide whatever we need to fulfill that call. If we can answer, if we can wrap our brains around that, then we can let go of those fears more easily. You talked about some of these areas of fear that can creep into people's lives, maybe sensing God's calling a person to do something, but there are, are things that, that hold them back. One of those areas, obviously, fear. Another area has to do with shame. And I wanted you to comment on how that operates in people's lives and really inhibits them from being or doing what God has called them to do. We all have things in our lives that we wish we could rewind the clock and undo or do differently. And, you know, God is such a gracious God. He gives us do-over after do-over after do-over, so much grace. We see so many stories in Scripture of people who stumble and fall flat on their faces, and yet God still uses them. But I think Satan really wants to use those mistakes and those regrets and just to cripple us, to cripple our confidence, to make us believe things like, well, I'm, I'm too damaged to be used by God. I've, I've made too many mistakes. I'm, I'm now, um, people will perceive me as a hypocrite because I used to live this way. And, and that's just not how God operates. God's grace is so big. It allows us to let go of that shame and let go of that regret and move forward. But so many times we sort of put ourselves in this box, this prison of our own design. And God is saying, I've set you free from that. I still love you. I still want to use you, wounds and scars and all. And those things will be a part 
of your testimony and a part of the way that I use you. Elizabeth Lang Thompson here on The Intersection. You can find out more through the website lizzylife.com. Next up on this edition of The Intersection, it's Nick Hall, founder of the Pulse Movement and author of the book Reset, Jesus Changes Everything. I spoke with him for the National Day of Prayer edition of my radio show. And in our conversation, he discussed the importance of prayer in the process of revival and repentance. He also highlighted the next Together event, Together 2018 at Texas Motor Speedway in October. From that conversation, this is Nick Hall. Well, we describe uh, Reset is a prayer, right? So the whole message that we share there is that this is a prayer. This is talking to God. This is a, a conversation with God. And I think I think prayer is, is one of the great mysteries and one of the greatest gifts that God gives us, right, that we can talk to God, that, that he hears our voice, that, you know, that, that when we pray, heaven responds, and God bends low to listen to us. I mean, just mere broken people, and he hears our voice, and he knows our name, right? And so if you're to look at revivals and awakenings of the past, there's really only a few common denominators. I mean, and it's really, it's prayer is always the baseline and foundation of all of that. I mean, you see prayer, you see uh, gospel proclamation, and you see kind of radical mission. You know, and in the midst of prayer, you could add fasting and other things there, but it's just there's this kind of like, there's this resurgence of the core of the faith. And, and I'll often tell people, man, if you show me the prayer movement, I will show you the God movement. And when the prayer movement dries up, the God movement dries up. I mean, it's it's actually possible and even is common in the American and Western church for things to look very successful because we can put on a good show and we can put on a good program and we can even fill seats, but only God can change a heart. And so I really look for the mark of success is less about attendance and it's more about transformation. And that transformation begins and ends where prayer is the priority. I had a mentor that used to say, Nick, we are prayerful or we are prideful. And I think that is so true. You know, when we pray, it is denying ourselves. It's denying our opinions. It's denying the tendency to turn to everyone else first. You know, prayer is coming to God humbly and saying, God, you have the answers. You are the one we need. We have messed up. And I just see this as this is the cornerstone of the church. Jesus said, my house will be called a house of prayer. The early church started on the day of Pentecost. It started out of a prayer meeting. And I just think, man, we need to get back to that core, to that basic. Uh, now, we also, on the flip side of that, I'm an evangelist. And so I would, I would very much say in the same breath, the evidence of effective prayer is effective mission. Because if we're praying and encountering Jesus in his holiness, the evidence of that is what we do after we say amen. And so it's prayer and then putting feet to those prayers. Mm. What repentance in the Bible means is it means we're turning to God who knows better, and we're admitting that we have messed up. It's, it's coming in agreement with his heart and saying we've disobeyed, we have broken his covenant, his law, we've done what was not right. And so when we look at a reset, we say, man— this is coming in humility, saying there is a creator, there was an initial design, and I have messed up that design. And so in its initial 
intent and the whole heart of it is coming in agreement saying, I didn't do it right. I need mm. a reset. I need to turn from these things I were doing that was wrong, and I need to come back to your heart, God, which I believe is the biblical definition of repentance, right? And so it's like, whether we call it repentance, whether we call it crying out to God for a reset, both are the same in that we're agreeing that we've been wrong, that we're agreeing that we've done what was not at God's heart. And I think when we talk about revival, you know, there's two sides of this. One is for the lost to come and realize that there is a creator and I need him. Revival often relates to the church, and it's us coming in repentance saying, God, we've made this about everything else. We've made this about safety. We've made this about preservation. We've made this about politics. We've made this about, you know, just whatever. Like, we judge people instead of loving people. Like, we point fingers at them instead of welcoming them. And, man, we need to repent. Like, of all the people that should know better and of all the people that need Jesus, we are always the first ones in line. The gospel isn't for those people. The gospel is for me, right? And so revival always starts in me, in my heart. Revival always starts in the church. Nick Hall here on The Intersection. The website address is pulsemovement.com. You can find out more about the Together event in October by going to togethergeneration.com. Well, there's another major evangelistic outreach coming up in June. It's called Harvest America featuring Greg Laurie. It will be held in Dallas on June 10th and is available for simulcast in churches and homes across the nation. Mark Arenas, Crusade Director, explained the concept of the event and walked through various logistics of getting connected to the simulcast. Here now is some material from that conversation. This is Mark Arenas. Harvest America is a great opportunity uh, for folks around the country to be part of something that is unifying, that is bringing churches together. It's a one-night event uh, where we, in our ministry uh, with Pastor Greg Laurie, uh, identify one location around the country that we are going to host the uh, event from, and we live stream it to churches and living rooms and coffee shops and community centers all across America. And this year we've selected... Uh, AT&T Stadium for the second time, uh, like you said, on June 10th, and uh, we'll be live streaming it to hopefully upwards of 5,000 host venues around the country. And you went to AT&T Stadium there in the Dallas area in 2016. Last year, it was in the Phoenix area, University of Phoenix Stadium. A crowd of more than 90,000 people attended in person there at AT&T Stadium. But beyond that, there were many, many more that actually viewed the event in a variety of different locations. So let's talk fruit. Tell us just a bit about how many people participated and how many people came to know the, the Lord. Well, the last time we were at AT&T, uh, 2016, you're correct. Uh, we had upwards of 100,000 people at AT&T Stadium live, uh, and over 300,000 people from around the country were at host venues, whether that's at their local church or in their living rooms watching it together. And the total number of professions is really amazing. Uh, you know, it's really what this ministry is all about, is uh, utilizing believers to be praying, inviting, bringing their unsafe friends and family either to AT&T, if you're in the Dallas community, or into the host venue around the country. We saw 6,500 people give their lives to the Lord, making a profession of faith live at AT&T. But we saw upwards of 19,000 people around the country from host venues do the same. 
So really, when you think about the audience, the audience is larger on the live stream side than it is there locally at AT AT&T. And we're hoping that those numbers grow this year in 2018 as we return back to that stadium. Well, we talk about Greg Laurie, and this is a man whom God has really placed upon his heart, the desire to see people come into a saving knowledge of Christ. Not only is he a local church pastor, but he is also the one that speaks at the Harvest Crusades that take place. I believe that's an annual event in Southern California, but you also have this Harvest America event. Elaborate just a bit about the heart behind this and the other events in which he uh, participates. Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a good one. You know, it, it's very unique that you find uh, an evangelist who's also a senior pastor of the church. And I love the heart of Pastor Greg in the fact that he identifies with pastors that we're asking to partner with us. And, uh, you know, he understands the, the daily struggles and the busyness of life that pastors go through in their own church. So he really impresses upon us as a team uh, to really shoulder as much of this as possible, to make it as easy as possible for churches to use Harvest America as an outreach. Uh, you know, Pastor Greg was saved during the Jesus Movement in the early 1970s here in Southern California, started pastoring our church, founded our church 43 years ago, uh, and is still the senior pastor. He's still there, you know, every Sunday. Uh, a couple weekends a year, our board allows Pastor Greg to go out and do what he does as far as uh, sharing the gospel through Harvest Crusades and Harvest Americas in communities around the country. So, um, you know, that that part of it is uh, extremely dynamic because you generally don't see those two giftings. Um, and I think it gives him perspective. It gives him better perspective and a better pulse on culture, what's going on and how to uh, impact the lives of nonbelievers and, uh, in, a, in a very unique way. Um, this will be our 29th year of doing um, our, our crusade in Southern California. So, you know, this is uh, what we brought into Harvest America is really just an amplified version of what we've been doing here in Southern California uh, since the early 90s. Mark Arenas here on The Intersection. You can learn more by going to the website harvestamerica.com. This is The Intersection Podcast, the weekly production of The Meeting House, and you can learn more through the website meetinghouseonline.info. You'll find a link to the media center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured here on The Intersection Podcast. Also, you can subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. The Intersection Podcast is also available through the Faith Radio app, You can learn more through the website faithradio.org. Also, when you visit the Meeting House homepage accessible through meetinghouseonline.info or through the programming section at faithradio.org, you can see links to two blogs. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. You can also follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page, and you can get connected to video content Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info or visit faithradio.org. Elizabeth Johnston is known as the activist mommy. She discussed the Freedom March in Washington, D.C., which occurred the first weekend of May, which included people who have found freedom from homosexuality through Jesus Christ. Also in our conversation, she discussed the bill in California limiting material relative to overcoming same-sex attraction. From our conversation prior to the Freedom March, this is Elizabeth Johnston. This is an 
a very exciting and empowering message to hear ex-gays, ex-homosexuals and transgenders coming out of the closet, if you will, and, um, and expressing their uh, celebration for having found the freedom from uh, their same-sex uh, desires, either the desires or the, uh, the acting on those desires. Uh, but this is a message that is very triggering to the left. Um, they're getting a we're getting a lot of media coverage for the Freedom March, which we are so excited mm. about. Yeah. Um, and NBC and Huffington Post today just uh, printed an article. So uh, clearly, the left is going to be very triggered about this. But you have to ask yourself, why? You know, I thought I thought that it, that they are all about uh, choosing what you want, what lifestyle you want, and people are going to celebrate the lifestyle. That they have chosen, and that's not okay. But it's okay to have, you know, gay pride parades where they're committing lewd acts in in the street and open view of children. So <laughs> it's going to be really, really interesting to watch how this all goes down. And I'm I'm super glad to be a part of it. Mm, and it's very interesting that those that espouse such concepts as tolerance and freedom tend to be some of the most intolerant. They want people to think a certain way. Obviously, that's what the lawmakers in California are after. With this Freedom March coming up in Washington tomorrow, one particular individual has caught my eye. His name is Luis Javier Ruiz. Actually, he was on site at the Pulse nightclub the night that so many people were killed that night. He is someone who was a homosexual and he declares freedom through Jesus yes. Christ. What do we know about his story? Louis is amazing, and I've just uh, been honored to become a friend of his through the planning of this Freedom March. And uh, the amazing thing is Louis is not the only cult survivor that will be at the Freedom March. Mm. Because of um, the publicity that we've been getting, another pulp survivor reached out to us and said, I too have experienced freedom from homosexuality since the pulp shooting, and I'm going to be there at the Freedom March. So I just get chill bumps right now um, uh, thinking about what, what God is doing. I get quite emotional, to be frank with you, because I have known for many, many years that the testimonies of ex-gays really are the coup de grace of the uh, arguments uh you know, of the LGBT, against the LGBT community. And uh, I've wanted so much, and I've done a lot on ActivistMommy.com, publishing articles of former homosexuals, and it felt like I've been one of the few, you know, who's willing to even publish these stories. Um, and and I'm just so excited to, to see their stories getting out. I mean, no matter what Huffington Post says, no matter what NBC says, the truth of it is is they're reading Louis's testimony. They're reading these testimonies of these homosexuals set free from the power of, of, of sin and darkness. And uh, and we're just super excited about that. But but you mentioned the California bill. It's just uh, uh, incredibly alarming and an outrageous violation of the First Amendment. No question about it. This is America. Uh, we are supposed to have protected speech, and this uh, ruling, I mean, I say, hey, uh, if California wants to be a communist state, then uh, they just need to succeed from the union and, and live with their decision to have a totalitarian regime, because this, that's not, this is un-American, entirely un-American. Now we have people that are coming forward and they're getting, as yeah. you were mentioning, national news coverage as they testify to what God has done in their lives. 
I, I understand completely why you're so excited about that. Exactly, because, you know, if, if we're going to talk in the Church of Jesus Christ about being set free from drug addiction, then we need to talk about being set free from homosexuality. When we talk about someone being set free from drug addiction, are we saying we hate drug addicts? Of course not. We are simply saying that this, the Bible, God's Word, is clearly laid out for us uh, what is a violation of His commandments. And when we begin to shun from speaking what those commandments are, because there is a certain segment of the population who has now bullied us into silence, you know what? We fear man more than we fear God. We should not be afraid to wield the sword of the Spirit. And that's what you're going to see in Washington, D.C., on Saturday, with the media surrounding us, you're going to hear ex-homosexuals unafraid to proclaim the truth of the gospel. Wow. What a moment. Mm. Groundbreaking. <laughs> Elizabeth Johnston here on The Intersection. Her website is activistmommy.com. Next up on this edition of The Intersection, it's former corporate executive Bruce Hartman, founder of Gideon Advisors and author of the book, Jesus and Company, Connecting the Lessons of the Gospel with Today's Business World. He discussed the integration of Christian principles and the example of Jesus into leadership, including the corporate or business world. Here now from that conversation is Bruce Hartman. I started out, uh, Bob, when I graduated from college, I followed a very traditional path. Uh, graduated with an accounting degree, went to work for one of the bigger accounting firms, and then just started moving my way up the ladder. And um, one of the things that was interesting about my career is that I always seemed to get put into turnaround situations. So besides being good at finance, I was good at helping um, companies turn their uh, business around. In fact, at you know, Foot Locker, we were many quarters when I was first made CFO, we were near bankruptcy. And there's, a lot of that is highlighted in the book, Jesus and Company. Throughout all of that, Bob, I always had this yearning to follow my second passion, which is now my first passion, but theology and Jesus and knowing more about Jesus. And as I my career moved forward to Yankee Candle, it became resources, my resources became less important to me and following Jesus became more important. And it was really the understanding of the difference between abundance and scarcity. I'd come to the decision that I had enough. Uh, and I mean, I didn't have enough, but I had enough resources that I could go into seminary, get a master's degree, and then hopefully in May, this May, I get my doctorate degree. Congratulations. Thank you. But it was later in my career, and I really wish it had been earlier in my career, that I understood the impact of following Jesus, not just as a savior, but as a life coach and as a teacher and a, a model to make business decisions. And throughout my the last seven years of studying, it's the one thing I focused on is how do I connect Jesus to the business world? And I do that a lot today in my counseling um, for folks, particularly if they're looking for a job, how to use some of the lessons of Jesus to help you get a job. Um, and especially with, I, I really uh, favor younger business people that um, are just starting out and try to interject the Christian values into starting up a business because there's no, no better place to start than the beginning. 
Well, and that is that is very interesting. Several streams of thought really occurring to me. For one thing, I was just thinking about your reputation in the corporate world. You were known as a turnaround expert, someone that would come into a, a situation that was, well, less than favorable and improve that situation. It's very interesting as we look at Jesus I mean, he's the the greatest turnaround expert of all. He's the one who can actually re, renew, revise, make us completely new through salvation. So he gives us the capacity to turn our lives around. I thought that was an, an interesting note. And there are so many of the principles that he taught that we can apply in our own situations, in our own workplace uh, issues that we face, what would you say would be maybe a couple of the the leading principles or the leading examples that Jesus has given that can be applied into the corporate culture? Well, there's a, there's a number of them. The, the one that I use the most, uh, particularly with people when they're looking for most business people always have to answer this question. If it's not every hour, it's every minute. And the question is, what ought I to do? The example that I think is the best one is when Jesus was in the garden just before the Passion. Um, and as he's, he's praying, three times he prays. And it's always to find the answer to this question, what ought I to do? And finally, as we all know, he submits and says, not my will, but yours. And the reason why that applies to business is we're faced every day with short-term and long-term decisions. We're always faced with the temptation of completing a job properly versus just getting by. And I think when we think about we're, as if we're working for God, what would God want? So this, this expression that Jesus had in the Garden of Gethsemane of not my will but yours I think that's probably the, the starting point, and I always use it as a starting point whenever I'm doing counseling. Bruce Hartman here on The Intersection. Find out more by going to the website brucelhartman.com. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection, it's Travis Weber, director of the Center for Religious Liberty at Family Research Council. He discussed President Trump's 2018 executive order establishing a faith-based initiative or office and shared a progress report since the 2017 executive order on religious liberty. From that discussion, this is Travis Weber. This uh, basically revamps uh, the White House's um, working and liaising with uh, faith-based organizations, which is a good thing. You know, I think the president recognizes that Faith-based organizations provide vital services in our society, and they should be protected and free to operate. And uh, my understanding is that there was a very powerful story um, that was told at this announcement at the White House, a story about um, a former bank robber and an FBI agent who, who had investigated him, um, uh, uh, led to his prosecution, but ultimately prayed for this bank robber he became a believer, and now they, they work together as friends, and there's an organization that's been birthed out of this, um, working on restoration of uh, those formerly in the criminal justice system. I think this is a very powerful story of the role of faith, and faith-based organizations 
in uh, in society, in this instance, working with those in the criminal justice system. Well, I think you bring up a good point. Of course, Travis, you work in the area of religious liberty, and you have seen where there has been in in some quarters with respect to the federal government a hostility toward religion, and faith-based organizations don't have the same opportunities to serve their communities. Of course, I, I don't think anybody, you know, if you really think about it, can deny the incredible impact that the faith community has had in so many different institutions in serving the communities that they're located in. So it's it's important that organizations, that people of faith are, are afforded the same opportunities as those that are not faith-based. No, very, very true. And, and the executive order makes sure that this happens. Uh, may, you know, will protect and ensure that they're not excluded from this space. Uh, you know, we have to remember that without the freedom to operate, religious organizations cannot do the work, good work that they do while operating, such as work that was displayed in this powerful story about the the former, um, uh, you know, the, the former criminal who who became a believer and uh, is now working to restore others in the, the criminal justice system. So, powerful story, but you need the freedom to operate in order to do that good work and. Uh, this is the subject of, of President Trump's executive order uh, issued last year, one year ago, that I detail and point out the consequences, the, the positive consequences and outflow of over the last year. In my uh, analysis of, of, you know, the study of the impact of last year's executive order, uh, which is up on our website at frc.org slash executive order. People can find it there. It's titled One Year Later, The Impact of President Trump's Executive Order Protecting Religious Liberty. One of the noteworthy points is that as a result of this executive order, the Department of Health and Human Services has issued a robust religious exemption for the many entities challenging the Obama administration, tied up for years in litigation, against the, the previous the Obama administration's actions, refusing to let them follow their beliefs and not wanting to be implicated in providing abortion-causing drugs and services and contraceptives under Obamacare. Now, with this new protection under the Trump administration, you have 44 schools providing an education for over 140,000 students that are involved in litigation that are better off, more protected under the Trump administration's action. You have other entities involved in that litigation that are part of groups which collectively serve 13.7 million people with health care and other services nationwide. So groups like them are now better off, religious groups more protected under the robust religious exemption. Meanwhile, they're tied up in litigation for years under the Obama administration, never resolved. That administration's HHS refused to really um, let them live freely according to their religious beliefs and constantly question them. So these are just two of the tangible, uh, quantifiable benefits of last year's executive order, and there are others that I detail in that report. Travis Weber here on The Intersection. The Family Research Council website is frc.org. We're nearing the end of this week's edition of The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. The website address is meetinghouseonline.info. You'll find a link to the media center through which you can listen to or download full conversations from recent guests featured here on the podcast. Also through that homepage, you can subscribe to The Intersection Podcast and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes on a weekly basis. 
You can also find the Intersection Podcast through the Faith Radio website at faithradio.org. There is a link to the Meeting House in the programming section. And when you visit meetinghouseonline.info or the programming section of faithradio.org, you'll find links to two blogs. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. Plus, you'll find a link to video content, including content from the recent National Religious Broadcasters Convention in Nashville. Again, you can go to meetinghouseonline.info or visit faithradio.org. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.